As we prepare to open God's word, let's pray and ask that he would bless it to us. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners conceived and born in sin, unable of ourselves to do any good, but we do repent of our sins and seek your grace to help us in our remaining weaknesses. Through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages, satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst with your refreshing truth, that we, with all our hearts, may love and serve you with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God who lives and reigns forever. Amen. You may be seated. And would you please turn with me in your Bibles to our sermon text for this evening, which is Zechariah chapter 6. We come to the last of Zechariah's visions this evening, which I think is very exciting. So we'll consider the, uh, the whole of Zechariah 6 this evening as our sermon text. And pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Zechariah chapter 6, reading the entirety of, the, of this chapter. Zechariah writes, Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go to the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me, Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord, as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hain, the son of Zephaniah, and those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, as I said, over the past uh, several weeks, six, seven weeks maybe, we've been, we've been considering uh, the, a series through Zechariah, and specifically for the past number of weeks, we've been considering this section of Zechariah where, where Zechariah recounts a series of visions which the Lord showed to him, eight visions which Zechariah was given on the night of February 15, 519 B.C., 
These visions, as, as we've said a number of times throughout this series, provide explanation and encouragement for the building of the temple. That's the context in which these come to Zechariah. The returned exiles are commanded to rebuild the temple of the Lord, and these visions provide needed explanation and encouragement for that project. They vividly depict God's return to dwell with his people and the implications of that return, that now is the day of repentance, that now is the time to be the holy people of God, that he has chosen these exiles, these returned exiles, to be. And tonight we consider the eighth and final vision in this series of Zechariah's visions, really a fitting end to this series of visions that we've been looking at over these past weeks. This final vision really provides the ultimate answer to that problem, that lament of the first vision. You may remember in the first vision, those, uh, we also saw horses who came and reported to the Lord, and they, they had patrolled the earth, and they said, all the earth remains at rest. And that was a problem that caused the angel of the Lord to cry out and lament that all the earth was at peace, that all the earth was prosperous, but not Judah. Judah was oppressed. Judah had no king. And this vision provides the ultimate answer to that problem. The message of this chapter, the sixth chapter of Zechariah, is these Judeans are in the day of small things, as they are rebuilding this smaller temple, as they they have no king, as they are oppressed by a foreign nation, as they are called to faithfulness in this context. The message of this chapter is that there is a true temple builder who is coming, And he will bring everlasting peace to the whole earth. That is the simple and clear message of this chapter. A true temple builder is coming who will bring peace, everlasting peace, to the whole earth. And we really see in this passage three actions which this true temple builder takes to bring peace to the earth. Three things that he he does to bring complete peace, everlasting peace, to the earth. The first is covenanting peace. The second is constructing the temple, and the third is consummating the kingdom. So those will be our three points for this evening. The three things the true temple builder does to bring everlasting peace to the earth, covenanting peace, constructing the temple, and consummating the kingdom. First, we'll consider covenanting peace. So we'll circle back in our last point to the first eight verses, which is really Zechariah's description of the vision he sees of his eighth and final vision. But we'll begin this evening by thinking about uh, verses 9 through 15, this word of the Lord that comes to Zechariah about the true temple builder, about this branch who is the true builder of God's temple. He's given this prophecy about a coming great temple builder, the branch. And this branch, or we called him Sprout as well, and uh, when we uh, saw him before, he's already appeared. He's already shown up in a prophecy in the book of Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 3, in his fourth vision in chapter 3. Um, we, there was a prophecy about the branch, about Sprout, this, uh, this figure of the future who would come, who would be a, a prophet, a priest, and a king in the future. And here we have more information about him, especially in verses 12 to 13 of our passage. And one of the things that we learn about him is that there will be a council of peace between the Lord and the branch. We see that there will be a council of peace, we read, between them. In verse 13, the council of peace shall be between them both. 
And what is this council of peace that Zechariah receives this word of the Lord here about this council of peace? What is this? Well, I would argue that this is a covenant made between the Lord and the branch, a covenant. And I'm drawing a little bit on uh, an argument by one of my professors here, so I want to give him credit, but, um, but I think there's good reasons for us to understand this counsel as a covenant. In Scripture, oftentimes, we, uh, we see this idea of taking counsel is equivalent or closely associated to covenant-making. So we see that, for example, in Psalm 83. They take counsel with one accord. Against you, they make a covenant. Two aspects of the same reality, taking counsel and covenant-making. And of course, oftentimes in Scripture as well, peace is the goal of a covenant. The goal of making a covenant is to bring peace. And so we see an example of that in Joshua, chapter 9, where Joshua makes that covenant with the Gibeonites. And we read at the end, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them. By making that covenant, he made peace with them. Again, two aspects of the same reality. And so I would argue we have here a covenant between the Lord and the branch, which the goal of this covenant is peace, is bringing peace and reconciliation to the people of God. And this, of course, would be great news for the people of Judah as they are rebuilding the temple of the Lord. As they are still under, as we've said, the dominion of Persia, they have no military of their own and no king. As there's seeming opposition to the temple from all sides, as the nations are at rest and Judah is at unrest, is not at rest, they receive this prophecy that a temple builder is coming who has covenanted with the Lord himself, that the Lord and the branch have sworn an oath, have, t- have made an agreement together that there will be perfect peace associated with the building of this new, this greater and final temple of the Lord that is coming. And this is a covenant which cannot be broken because the Lord himself has sworn it. This is great news. And in light of the New Testament, in light of the greater revelation which we have in the work of Jesus Christ, we can say that this covenant is none other than the covenant made in eternity between the Father and the Son to bring redemption to the people of God. Because of his great love for you, the Father agreed to give up his own son, to not spare him for your salvation. Because of his great love for you, the Son agreed to come as the second Adam and fulfill all righteousness in our place. And not only that, he agreed to take all our debts upon himself, to guarantee their payment himself. What a great comfort it is, isn't it, to know That before you were born, before the world even existed, before time even, the Father and the Son knew you by name, set their love upon you. God himself made a covenant to bring peace and reconciliation between himself and his rebellious people, to accomplish this reconciliation himself. And our God's purposes cannot fail. Your everlasting salvation, your peace with God, was guaranteed, was secure in your Savior, the Son of God, even before the foundation of the world. And in the fullness of time, the Son of God came, that great and true temple builder, came down to earth to execute this covenant, to bring the redemption which was agreed upon, which was promised in this covenant. And this brings us then to our second point, constructing the temple. Constructing the temple. And we really see this in verses 9 through 11, the Lord commands Zechariah to perform a symbolic act, a symbolic act. 
And sometimes prophets are commanded to do things. Uh, to, um, sometimes they are commanded to uh, preach words to the people of God. Sometimes they're commanded to act things out to, to make a point to the people of God as well. It's another way that prophecy can come. So we see Hosea is commanded to take a wife at the beginning of the book of Hosea to make a point about Israel's faithlessness. We see Ezekiel is commanded for uh, hundreds of days to lie on his side to make a point And here, all Zechariah is commanded to do is make some crowns. He's commanded to make some crowns here. In verse 10, take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold. So this symbolic act that Zechariah is commanded to perform needs witnesses. And here we have four witnesses who are mentioned. We don't know much about these men that are mentioned who are going to be witnesses of this symbolic act. Um, Since Zechariah would have known them by name, they're probably important members of the community. They're representative members of uh, of the Judeans. Josiah, the one whose house they're to, uh, they're to go to for this, has ties to a priestly family, we think. So um, he probably works closely with, with uh, Joshua, the high priest, and that's maybe why his house is chosen. But that's about the extent of our knowledge about these figures. But we do see several times in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch especially, this, uh, the, these uh, free will offerings, they're called, of silver and gold, which are taken for important events. So we see this, maybe the most uh, well-known one is when Moses is commanded to take from the people as their hearts, uh, as their hearts encourage them, as their hearts spur them on uh, to give silver and gold and other precious metals and precious items for the building of the tabernacle. It's a free will offering. And we have kind of a similar thing here, a free will offering from these leaders for this important event, for this momentous uh, act that Zechariah is commanded to perform here. And what are they making? Well, verse 11 says, make a crown. And the ESV, obviously, which, we, which I'm reading from here, and many other translations and scholars take this word as singular, that Zechariah is commanded to make one crown here. But I think there's good reasons from the Hebrew and from the context of the passage to actually say that Zechariah is commanded here to make two crowns, to make two different crowns. And one uh, reason that we have uh, right before us is that he collects two different materials. So two crowns, one of silver and one of gold. And this symbolic act that he's commanded to perform is crowning the high priest Joshua. And so he takes one of these two crowns that he's making, probably the silver one, And in verse 11, he's commanded, set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So you probably remember, you may remember Joshua from Zechariah's fourth vision, the high priest who was purified. He had his his dirty garments removed from him. He was clothed in pure festal garments. He was purified to serve in the presence of the Lord. And now uh, we see something similar to that fourth vision where he was given uh, priestly, or excuse me, uh, kingly and prophetic responsibilities as the priest, we see something now sort of similar as he's crowned. This high priest is crowned like a king. And as Zechariah, as these witnesses look upon Joshua, the high priest, crowned with this silver crown, they see in shadowy form, they see a picture, a shadowy picture, but a picture nonetheless of the branch, of branch. And what more do we learn about branch here in this word from the Lord? 
Well, verse 12, he will branch out from his place. Literally, we could translate that. He will shoot up from the ground beneath him, kind of like a a new shoot out of the ground. Joshua was an offshoot or a branch from the priestly line. And so in kind of a similar way, the branch who's coming will be an offshoot, will be a branch from the line of David, from God's chosen line that his Messiah would come from. In verse 13, we read, he will bear royal honor and will sit and rule on his throne. Joshua, right, is only given some responsibilities of a king and of a prophet, only those responsibilities which are needed to keep this community going in the meantime. But the branch will be a king who will be enthroned on the throne of the Lord himself, who will be an actual king from the line of David, who will execute justice, who will go to battle once again against the enemies of God. And he will not only be a king, he will be a priest. He will sit as a priest on the Lord's throne. The branch will be a king and a priest on the throne of the Lord. All this is wonderful news again, that there's a great king and priest coming. And this is kind of similar to what we saw in the last prophecy about the branch. But what does this prophecy about the branch emphasize most? What is emphasized in particular about the work of the branch in this passage? Well, two times in verses 12 and 13, he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord. This is really the key thing that Zechariah, that the Lord wants Zechariah to communicate to the people is that the branch is a temple builder. And of course, as these visions are given, the temple is being built. And there's probably some concern, some disappointment among those who are building the temple. This is smaller than Solomon's temple, not as impressive. There's no king to build the temple as we would expect, right? This is 2 Samuel 7 said, The righteous king, the obedient king, will be the one to build the temple. There's no king building this temple. But there's a priest and king coming who will build the great and final temple of the Lord. This great promise to the people that a king will build the temple of the Lord in accordance with that promise made to David all those years ago, that the Lord will establish his throne forever. So here we have this prophecy of a king from David's line that will build a greater and final temple to come, a temple which will exceed Solomon's in beauty and glory, a temple which will last forever, a temple that cannot be torn down like Solomon's and even the one that they're building now. And all those still in exile, even Gentiles, will be involved in this temple building of the branch. We see that in verse 15. Those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. Now we might ask, we have, I argued that there's two crowns here, one of silver and one of gold. What about the other crown? What about the golden crown? Well, we read about what they're supposed to do with that crown in verse 14. And the crown, that is the other gold crown, shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hain, the son of Zephaniah. The crown of gold is to remain in the temple until the branch himself comes and is enthroned in the temple of the Lord, on the Lord's throne. This crown is for him. And so every time these witnesses enter the temple, every time they see this crown, they are reminded that the branch is coming, the great and true temple builder, is coming. This passage ends on kind of an interesting and maybe somewhat perplexing note in verse 15. This shall come to pass if you will diligently obey 
the voice of the Lord your God, we read. The fulfillment of this prophecy, in other words, is about the branch, about this great temple that's coming, requires obedience. There's a sense in which this God is making this promise. He's saying this will come about, and yet it requires obedience, the fulfillment of this prophecy. It's contingent on obedience, in a sense. And this should, this, this prophecy of a great and true and indestructible temple should spur the people on to, uh, to grateful obedience to God. This is a great salvation, a great blessing that God is promising to his people. But ultimately, the people and cannot render the kind of obedience that would be necessary to bring these promises to fulfillment. I mean, think about it. Is there imperfect obedience of these Judeans? Really, does it really merit the building of an indestructible and, and everlasting temple of God? A perfect temple? No. They need God himself to bring about the building of this temple. You can imagine that every time these witnesses, these four witnesses, and all the people whom they represented entered the temple of the Lord and saw this crown, they would ask themselves, how long? When is the branch coming? When is this great king and priest coming? When will he wear the crown? When will he be enthroned in the temple of the Lord? This temple, actually, that these people were uh, building, as that the Judeans were building, as these visions were coming to Zechariah, was destroyed later by the Greeks, largely destroyed by the Greeks, rebuilt by Herod then. Um, Maybe, probably, this gold crown that was in the temple was lost in the mix of all of that, and probably many people forgot about it. They only knew about it through this prophecy of Zechariah. But one day, in the wilderness of Judea, A man from a backwater town in a backwater region of Israel came to be baptized by John. And John protested. He did not want to baptize him. He said, I'm not even worthy to to loose the strap of your sandals. But Jesus said to him, it's necessary for me to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, this baptism was in obedience to the will of his father. And this set the pattern for his whole life, his whole life. And his death even were in obedience to the will of his father. Perfect obedience. The kind of obedience that can win the building of an indestructible and perfect and everlasting temple. As our great king, he defeated all the enemies of God. And as our great priest, he offered up the perfect and final sacrifice for sins. And because of his work, he has been crowned with this golden crown. He is bearing royal honor. He is enthroned as a king and a priest in the temple of the Lord on his throne. And he is building this temple, a perfect and holy temple, a temple which cannot be destroyed, a temple which includes even the exiles that never returned, even Gentiles are included in this temple. And through faith in Christ, you are a stone in this temple. You are a part of this temple And he continues to add to this temple day by day through the preaching of the gospel, through the work of his Holy Spirit, bringing peace, bringing reconciliation to those who were once enemies of God. And we as the people of God, we long for that day when this temple is complete, when Christ returns, when there will be perfect peace on the earth. And this brings us to our third and final point, consummating the kingdom, our third point. And this is really what we see in this eighth and final vision as we come to this end, the end of this series of visions that, of Zechariah. 
the eighth and final vision, and it begins how uh, we've seen is the indicator of all the other visions uh, beginning. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw. And what does Zechariah see in this last vision? Well, he describes it for us. Four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Now this probably, this may remind you of the first vision. There we saw horses as well. Also different colored horses, probably uh, indicating to us the great status of the Lord who is the, uh, who is the um, owner of these horses. And there's four horses in this vision. And as with some of the other visions, this number four is important. And the angel interprets the significance of that number for Zechariah in verse 4. When Zechariah asks the question, what are these? And in verse 5, the angel said, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. So these horses are the four winds of heaven. In other words, they're going out to all the parts of the world. We might think of the four points on a compass. They're going out north, south, east, and west all over the world, because the Lord is the Lord of all the earth. That's what we've seen, and that's what's been emphasized in so many visions for us. The Lord is the Lord of all the earth, and that's repeated in this, uh, in this vision as well, that they've come from, pre- uh, come from presenting themselves before this Lord of all the earth. Now, remember, in that first vision, the Lord's, these horses, the Lord's reconnaissance team, had just arrived from scouting the earth, that they had seen all the things that were going on on the earth, and they had just arrived to the Lord's throne room, to his uh, his castle, to his palace, to his temple. They had just arrived to report, and their report was that all the earth is at peace. And here we see that same team, in a sense, although there are some important differences, but these, this same team, the Lord's, uh, at the Lord's uh, command, going out now, they're going out uh, God is acting on the information he received in that first vision that all the earth was at peace. He's acting on the basis of the salvation he promised throughout all the other visions. And now he's sending this team of horses out to bring true peace to the earth. You may remember we had some imagery of dusk in the first vision that that we uh, could think of those horses as being described as being in a shadowy place, that the sun, it's this imagery of the sun kind of setting, the beginning of Zechariah's night, the beginning of this night of visions. And now it's no longer dusk, it's no longer sunset in this vision, but it's rather a new morning. The sun is rising. This is the imagery of those bronze mountains, is the sun shining, reflecting off of these mountains as these chariots go forth between the mountains, as they go forth to bring peace to the earth. A new day has dawned, in other words. Not only the end of Zechariah's night of this vision, but really a new day for the people of God is dawning as these chariots go forth between these mountains. It's no longer this reconnaissance team reporting in secret in the shadows to God. Not, not, uh, that it's no longer that people on earth can ignore this uh, team or not be aware that God sees all, that he knows all. Now God's war chariots are going forth publicly before all, in broad day to execute his judgment on the world. And specifically here in this passage, we read that they execute judgment on the north and the south, right? They go all over the world, but it's summarized by talking about the north and the south. In verse 6, the chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. 
So God's judgment against all of the enemies of God and his people is summarized by these war chariots going to the north and the south, going out against the two great enemies of God throughout all of Scripture. The two great enemies throughout all of Scripture are Egypt in the south and Babylon to the north, and these war chariots are going out against them here. Throughout Scripture, these nations represent all the powers of sin and darkness set against God and his people, and now his war chariots are going against them to bring judgment, to bring peace to the whole earth. And they do go out. They patrol the earth, we read in verse 7. And, the, and uh, excuse me, the result of this mission of judgment, the result is given to us in verse 8. Behold, those who go to the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. That God's spirit is now at rest is the result of the mission of God's war chariots going forth, of, this, of the dawn of a new day for God's people. His spirit is at rest. The north country, I mentioned this in passing before, is where Jeremiah talks about the enemies of God come from the north country. The exiles are taken out to the north country. This is the place of greatest threat to the people of God. This is the place of greatest wickedness in the north country. And now, God's spirit is at rest, even in that place of greatest threat and of greatest wickedness. God has claimed even this place as his own. He has brought peace even to this place. And therefore, all the earth is finally and truly at peace. This is a beautiful picture, brothers and sisters, of the consummation of God's kingdom, of the final judgment on God's enemies, of the sun rising on the people of God, of Christ's return, of the branch returning to bring peace to the whole earth. God covenanted peace within himself in eternity, and Christ has already defeated the enemies of God. He is building the temple. He is bringing peace and reconciliation in our day. And this vision promises perfect peace when Christ returns, that God, uh, when God sends forth his war chariots, when he will finally and ultimately conquer all the enemies of Christ and his church. This is the great hope that we have if you are here today trusting in Jesus Christ. May this spur us on to greater faithfulness to God in this day of small things. And if you are not here trusting in Christ, I urge you to repent and put your faith in him today. And this peace, this reconciliation will be yours even now. And this great hope of days of perfect peace will be yours because of the work of the branch, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for the peace which you planned for your people from eternity, the peace which your Son has won for and continues to bring to your people in these last days, and the perfect and complete peace which you will bring to the whole earth at his return. May we live lives of faithfulness to you in light of this great and glorious truth. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.